I love an interview that I want to come back to again and again. And this is one of them. You talk about one word that sums up this interview. It's impressive because my next guest has a very impressive career and track record from being named one of Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 and one of the most notable women in healthcare by Cranes Magazine. I love it. She has cultivated an impressive portfolio to share with anyone interested in elevating their leadership skills and stay sharp within their industry or company. She has done it and she documents it in this book called Leadership and Life Hacks, Insights from a Mom, Wife, Entrepreneur, and Executive. I'm telling you, she's got them all and she talks about those stakeholders and being a leader in all of those fronts. But I tell you her business career, I don't know what she's like as a mom and and a wife, but she's got to be pretty good. But I'm telling you from a business side, she really knows her stuff. You're going to hear that coming through loud and clear. She draws from her own experience, offering real world tips and guidance on what works and what doesn't. Please welcome Alyssa Rapp, the CEO of Surgical Solutions. From Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. So my first question has to be, how the heck did you get in the surgery business, surgical business, Given the fact you came, you were with wine, and then you you got brothers that are in acting. So I I mean this is got true, Jeffrey. All oh true. my gosh, I I gotta imagine your family uh, reunions have got to be just nuts. Well, my mother's side, they involve a lot of music and song as it is because she's Dutch, and in the Dutch tradition, there is always music and song. And then on my rap side, my Pulitzer nominated playwright brother Adam Rapp wrote a beautiful piece for Hal's in My Wedding and Anthony Rapp sang a song and I can't say that I feel anything but incredibly blessed and spoiled to have them and my younger brother Jeff and older sister Anne as, as siblings. It's a talented bunch. Well, and I'm sure they say the same thing about you as your husband. Of course, you're married to a former uh, pro baseball player as well. Yeah, as he likes to remind our children, he's a lot cooler than I am. But he said, just because <laughs> mommy's smarter doesn't mean she's always right. I said, it uh-huh. does mean I'm always right. Yeah, well, mom's bringing a pretty good paycheck home, too. So just uh, shut up, Dad. That's all right. That's all right. Thank you. You can tell about that. <laughs> well, he'll listen to this. Of course, that we like that. I just think that's great. Your life, if I look at it, to me, with all the things you've done, I mean, you went to Stanford, you've got your political science, by the way, good for you. I was political science major. I just think it's interesting to look at your background. It's almost like a Forrest Gump kind of career. Yeah, I think that, listen, I do believe still in this day and age in a broad-based liberal arts education. I went to Yale. I was trained exceptionally well in high school at Nutria and then there on writing and reading, which are some level fundamental to uh, one's ability to both synthesize and communicate information, which is at, at its core business. I then went and on to politics for a couple of years, out of college, worked for a uh, U.S. congresswoman as her national finance director, and that was a wonderful entrepreneurial experience. I had a thirst for learning more about politics. And I think I had learned at that moment, I would want to do it as the candidate at some point, but never as the staffer again. And off to business school, I went to pursue a dream of being an entrepreneur. And Stanford is unequivocally, in my mind, one of the best places on the planet to go and get nurtured in your entrepreneurial ways. And I've had a privilege of being a professor there as well for the last six years. And once I was there, I got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug even further, decided to pursue my first startup. I thought it would be in health and fitness and real estate, like my stepfather, who's been a great mentor to me as an entrepreneur, and then ended up falling into and stumbling into 
an e-commerce idea with a couple classmates in the wine category that turned into a business plan, that turned into my first startup, that turned into a 10-year run in Silicon Valley in the wine industry, in the global wine industry, which was fun and sexy and informative and also an incredibly major roller coaster ride. And I think that having run a venture-backed company for a decade, you, you're involved with people who are venture capitalists, Jeffrey. I, I, I love venture. I'd love to be involved and I'd love to be involved today on the other side of the table. But really, from a CEO perspective, for my next gig, I was excited about running a private equity-backed company more than a venture-backed company. And just to see if you can take something with a little bit more scale out of the gate and accelerate it, its outcome. So if you look mm -hmm. at it from that trajectory, political national finance director, dot-com CEO in Silicon Valley, private equity-backed CEO in Chicago, it probably sounds a little less schizophrenic than politics, wine, and healthcare. But, but either way, it's all true. Well, and you've got a good company. It's Sterling, right? Yeah, Sterling Partners has been terrific. They've been wonderful yeah. for me to work with. And we have had a really good two-year run. And I'm excited to see what the new two, next two years brings. You have to tell, tell them I said hi. I sit across from them on the table on a couple of deals. And well, well, uh, yeah, well, they, they, they looked at buying a printing and labeling company years and years ago that we that we had down there. Hmm. Well, anyway, hmm. but I just uh, they were class act, class act and uh, good. Good, good people. So we're talking about the first company that you did was the dot-com that you, and then you exited was Bottle Notes. That's right. It's interesting because now you're back to the surgical company. And of course, we're going to get into your book, Leadership and Life Hacks. I want to get into that in a few minutes. I always like to follow where the story goes. And the sure. story that you mentioned that you here you were, you had the background, you thought it was going to be something more medical, and then all of a sudden, wine pops up. I mean, where, I mean how did that come up? Sure. The first go, I thought I would follow. My stepfather is a real estate developer in Chicago, Daniel Levin, and runs mm. a real estate management company, the Habitat Company, and built the largest health and fitness club in the country, single single site called East Bank Club. And I thought going out to the business school, I would build potentially East Bank clubs in California and a prodigal daughter come home and then see what happened. But I realized quickly in California that there were imperfect substitutes to East Bank, but ample substitutes, including being able to work out outside. And to do this massive one-stop shop fitness center concept, even this was now, what, 15 years ago, would have made more sense in an emerging market like China or India. And I didn't feel motivated to go do that at that juncture. And so I started looking at other ideas. And the one that kind of literally fell into my lap was wine had been a hobby and a passion from my art history days at Stanford, at Yale, sorry, through, through my days as a grad student at Stanford. And all of a sudden, I started thinking about how the next generation of wine enthusiasts were getting their information about wine, and it mm -hmm. was not happening in the same way as the boomers. And yeah. the Wine Spectator and Decanter Magazine and these big, massive events, Aspen Food and Wine, were just not neither accessible nor communicating on the right level to this next gen. And while I ran a wine club at Stanford at the time, I was really struck by how thirsty my peers were for wine knowledge and how willing your friend Bob Ackerman and my friends Jack Capebread or Pete Mandavi Jr. were to come and teach business school students about wine. And so I realized, you know, a light bulb went off. Could there be a business model out there more like the Netflix for wine, where mm -hmm. you educate and entertain the next generation of wine enthusiasts about wine? The 1.0 business model was uh, we were a wine marketing firm. And so as we matched supply and demand, we got a percentage of the action when consumers joined our wine clubs and got shipped the wine that we sent them from our winery and importer partners. 
due to a regulatory shift, which is discussed at, at nauseum in the book in a chapter called Pivot versus Quit, my book, Leadership and Life Acts, that came out with Forbes Books in October, when we had to pivot because of this regulatory shift that rendered our original business model obsolete, that pivot to a media company was not what I would have ever foreseen years prior, but really where we ended up scaling the business and became, you know, many called it the food and wine for the next generation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it was a great, hard school of hard knocks learning, you know, fighting through the 2008 years with a strategic pivot, et cetera, but a really, really, really good life experience. And then once we exited that, once I exited that to that hedge fund I mentioned, I spent two years advising private equity firms and family offices on various growth strategies. And it was really fun. It was a perfect couple of years as I had had our second daughter, who's now four and a half and got to still teach at Stanford and really think about what was next. And as I started exploring various projects, I realized that I did love the idea of being a CEO again, but being a CEO of a private equity backed company was really what I was seeking. And you mentioned it first, you know, I think that the people you work with, and I, I am sure you agree, are really what make business fun or, or not fun for that matter. And right. so when I first synced up with Sterling Partners, we were looking, talking about a coffee deal, a probiotic deal, other consumer deals that were much more similar to my background. But in the end, where they had a need was for a very entrepreneurial, quote unquote, turnaround CEO for a healthcare services company. And they were willing to bet on my experience and I was willing to bet on them. And, and so that's how I ended up in healthcare. I chose the firm first and the company second, and it has been a great fit. It was because of the people that I ended up here. I didn't make the conscious decision to, to go from alcohol bev to surgical services. I always say that a box of soap, a cure for disease, a political candidate, whatever, it's all in the packaging. It's the, yep. it's the same yep. steps and everything, but yep. you got to like what you're doing or yeah. it's not worth doing. When you become a CEO in private equity company or even start up your own, you, you got to drink it. You got to drink it. You have to lead yeah. it. Yeah. So the good news is with the first one, I was in love with the product and then you know fell in love with the idea of running companies. Second, with this company, I knew I loved to lead and it was really the opportunity to test leadership in a brand new industry. And I love to learn. And so given that this was a brand new learning curve for me in this industry, which is obviously impacts 20% of our GDP, et cetera, I was excited to learn about it more. And then I have a passion for leadership and, and, and running a team. I do, two years in, now feel very, very, very strongly about the crucial role we play in the 40 hospital sites in which we work and how we really help surgeons and nurses operate at the top of their licenses and help hospitals operate more economically, which is a really, really daunting thing for them these days when they're being asked to do more with less. So I, and especially in the, in the wave of technology innovation, they can barely stay afloat. So I feel the work we're doing in the category, as I've learned the category over the last couple of years is really important and and that it's mission driven, but the initial ask of go take the helm of a 200 employee PE backed healthcare services company. I start the book actually by saying, I said yes. And the intro to the book is entitled, Now What? It was the, I said yes to the opportunity <laughs> yeah. and now what have I done, right? And how yeah, the right. hell did I do it? Yeah. That was honest to God, what went through my head. Yeah, I know I know those feelings. Hey, let's take a break for a second. I'm gonna come back and let's get into the book because it's just a, it's a dynamo. Let's just take a quick break. C-Suite Radio. Okay, we're back. I, w- I want to talk about this. What, what's one leadership hack everyone should adopt? 
I think the one that I get asked about the most that resonates the most is this notion of episodic versus daily balance. Yeah. And what do I mean by that? I think that if I woke up every day trying to be the perfect wife, have two hour romantic meal with my husband, four hours of perfectly balanced parenting, a two hour workout, unending effort with, as a CEO, got to be a, a perfect daughter, the perfect best friend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's not enough hours in the day. How's that working out for you? <laughs> well, so I had to widen the aperture of time and think yeah. about balance is something to be achieved over several days or even a week, maybe yeah. even two weeks. And if I do that, I try to nail two stakeholders a day. And people chuckle when I say that, but I actually really mean it. Like I try to be yeah. a great CEO and a great mom or mm-hmm. a great wife and a great mom or a great wife and a great CEO, but I can't be great at all of those things in every day. So I really try to be great at two of them and and then you know, reshuffle the priorities the next day. And I, I'm also pretty zealous in terms of giving myself an hour to myself every morning, a minimum 45 minutes. Like everyone has their own thing. Some people meditate, some people walk their dogs, some people journal, some people work out. My thing is working out, but I, I don't get 45 minutes to myself before the whole day begins. I can give the other 23 hours to the world, but if I don't have one hour for me, my it's like I'm also starting behind the eight ball. So I, I think we all have to pick different priorities and different tricks of the trade, but the notion of episodic versus daily balance of really widening the aperture of time and trying to achieve balance over a few days or a week, not even a couple weeks of worst case scenario, not a day is what I think is probably the most poignant hack in the book. Yeah. You know, I talk about seesaw, you know, like life's a little bit like a seesaw. You sit on one yep. side, it's got to give on the other. And that's really the way you got to look at it. And I, I love the aspect of you look at that inside of a time frame. And yeah. it's okay to go real heavy over here. Like, hey, kids, I'm da- you know, dad's not coming home for a while. This yeah. is what we got to go do. And for you to have this, I got to go do this. Are we okay with totally. that? And then everybody gets it, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's totally. always about community. It's also about communicating and setting up those conditions of satisfaction, not only for yourself, but your family or, or for the other stakeholders, as you said. I think that's important. I think that's true. And another hack in the book that's something that's very, it sounds like you believe in too, is this notion of over-communicating versus under-communicating, particularly yeah. business, but even at home. I mean, I think, well, and then another, there's a whole chapter on this, this whole notion of breaking bread matters. I mean, I think in this digital age, the temptation yeah. to stare at the screen is so real, like yep. stopping the music, looking people in the eye, both professionally and personally, doesn't have to be dinner at home. It's pretty hard to achieve with kids and parents doing all things, but breakfast is the meal where I really try to look my kids in the eye if I possibly can. Like really just taking the time to break bread and have a conversation that doesn't involve a device, I think is actually really, really powerful still. And I, I think back to the, I just took six days off with my husband and girls. We were in Hawaii. It was a blessing to be there. And I think that, okay, I love being in the water and I love the whale watching and I love the boogie boarding, but really the meals we had, the four yeah. of us every yeah. day, what yeah. I cherished the most yeah those are the most important i spent a lot of day that, that's a good point for everybody that's listening in i this is one of the things i do we spend a lot of time with the family i don't know about anybody else so we're puzzle people we like doing puzzles we do puzzles too. i'm obsessed yeah. with, i want to do one new one a month with each girl this year that's my one of my resolutions i'm obsessed with puzzles i love them yeah don't be like my dad though my dad was this tough air force sergeant and after we finished the puzzle and, and we were like so proud of it. He would turn it over, break it up, and we had to do no. it without any pictures. Oh, no. No, we yeah. do it with the pictures. We take pictures <laughs> of stuff, and then we have now like six or eight finished puzzles strewn about the living room and kitchen that we're not prepared to break up yet because oh. we're still admiring our accomplishment. Yeah. My little, our little two-year-old granddaughter, soon to be three, 
tore one of the pieces in half and kept it. So she. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. It was hilarious. So when we caught her at it, you just saw the look on her face. Anyway, side note. I read an article in which you talk about how businesses need to be prepared for tough times. And I think we've got some tough times coming. I really do. And not to be down and gloom, because I think even in tough times, there's great businesses and great profits and great growth for certain companies. So what are the top couple of things that businesses should do to prepare and maybe even survive a a bad economy? I mean, listen, it's pretty obvious who survives a a tough economic cycle, the lean carnivores. Hmm. There's just not a lot of room for fat in the system. And another, a big one vice I got in the Silicon Valley years is not deciding what to do strategically is hard, but deciding what not to do. Rather than giving 10 things or 60%, if times are tough, it's better to like literally cut off certain initiatives like Nukem. Don't waste any resources on them and then focus on what you're going to do and do it well and nail it. Because where you're exceptional, as you know, as well as I, is where you're going to win. And while those nice to haves are really wonderful to have in a an exciting, frothy economy where you're investing in growth and continuing to in a tight, lean economy. You don't. You got to make a couple bets, and you got to nail. That's what I would try to do. I mean, listen, there are lots of things even here at Surgical Solutions. We have a technology digitization initiative underway that is, I think, required for our business to not become extinct. And we're, we've invested in it. And we're continuing to invest in it. But there are lots of other exciting things we've talked about doing: vertical integration through medical devices, even bringing some new brand new technology, multi-million dollar technology, some of our new accounts and trying to help them variableize the cost of these very expensive fixed assets. And I, even in the last years, we're trying to really hone our craft and grow aggressively at our core. We, I know we need the digitization initiative, but the other initiatives are nice to haves, not gotta haves. You can't do it yeah. all. No one has unlimited resources except Google. Like you can't do it all. And therefore doing what you do well, that was what I learned the hard way in my startup. We had infinite good ideas, and I don't say that to be arrogant. We had absolutely 20 innovative, industry-changing ideas. What I look back, what I regret is not that we pursued five of them. Is I Now looking back, knowing what I know today, I would have pushed us further to choose three of them. Because it's so hard to win, you want to give yourself every opportunity to nail it, and you just have to be laser-focused, as I know you, I assume you'd agree, in order to do it, particularly in tough times. And and the other thing I've lived and I talked about in the book on the same very topic, in terms of strategic shifts and changes, is it better to have fewer people in the boat rowing in the same direction toward the same shore than more people where some are lemmings and you don't know if they're in or they're out. You're better off with six people with just enough provisions and water for six than eight if the two extras are iffy because that's a waste of time and energy again. Just work leaner, smarter, faster, smaller, I think is how I view it. Hey, let's take another quick break. We're talking with Alyssa Rapp and she is the author of Leadership and Life Hacks and we'll be right back. Okay, we mentioned at the top of the show that uh, your husband's a former baseball player. So I'm going to tie in a baseball question here. So Uh-oh. what? The, yeah, what's the big? What what position did he play? I can't remember. Uh, Hal was a first baseman for uh, his career. He won a World Series with the Cincinnati Reds, but he was drafted Reds, to the yeah. Yankees. So right. you'd see a couple yeah, of both nah. those baseball cards floating. And I, and I'm all for baseball metaphors, Jeffrey. I've my last chapter of the book, Leadership and Life Acts, is called Keep Swinging, dedicated to Hal. So there I, you I, go. I, I'm okay. All right. So what's the biggest curveball life's thrown at you and how were you able to handle it? That's an excellent question. 
I think from a professional standpoint, I was in the middle of our first company three and years in, and there was a regulatory shift that rendered mm. our original business model obsolete at the Uh-oh. eve of the 2008 economic meltdown. Uh, and yeah. so you've got the world of venture capital changing, semi-drying up. We were angel at that stage, angel and early stage, seed stage VCs. And we had the regulators coming in and saying, you know, listen, this whole notion of third-party marketing firms, it was legal in 99, but we're going to, for no good reason. And, and we ended up yeah. changing the law back through lobbying activities, et cetera. But we're going to render this model obsolete for no good reason. It was anti-consumer, anti-tech, anti-wine or small winery, et cetera. But they nonetheless did it for a period of time. And I think that, you know, I had a lot of advisors and a couple of directors saying, you know, Alyssa, this is a good college to try, valiant effort. You did everything you thought you would, you did everything you could do, put up the white flag, move on. People will back you with the next one. You didn't, you know, okay, you lost, you lost, but it wasn't your fault. And there was a piece of me, indefatigable piece of me that even I wanted to believe them and just put up the flag. And then there was a nagging piece of me that said, gosh, darn it, we've been smart and innovative. Can't we out-innovate this bad luck? And can we think about a way to pivot our strategy, still help new to intermediate wine enthusiasts get educated and entertained by wine and help brands get access to that audience, but change the economic revenue model of how we make money as a company. And so I think those were some soul-searching moments of like looking in the mirror and looking at your team and saying, do we have what it takes to make this change in the worst economy in, you know, 80 years. And and we did, but it was hard. I mean, that was. Yeah. I mean, you guys could have, at that time, you could have just like drank the, I mean, gone and got a couple of bottles of wine and just drank yourself into an oblivion. I mean, I mean it, it might have taken more than a couple of bottles, but yeah, it, it, that would have been a, <laughs> I mean, it, was, yeah. it was, it was, it was a tough one. It was a tough one. That was a, a really, really tough one. It's interesting you to I hear your pride when you talk about private equity. And I mean, you, when you look at, you know, like you were at Stanford at the time and you have that that community, the VCs, the the back, all of that, the infrastructure that goes around that. I don't think Silicon Valley would be what it is today if it weren't for Stanford and then the the community that grew up around it. But we've got these pockets of private equity like Chicago and New York. You seem to be leaning a lot towards that discussion around that's a really good thing now being with a PE company as opposed to like venture back we having to raise money all the time. What, what, what's your thoughts about that? It's exactly that, Jeffrey. You nailed it. I like the idea of focusing on running the race or the series of sprints from a starting point to the end point and ascending the mountain, whatever metaphor you want to use, and doing that as efficiently and effectively as possible and seeing how hard and fast you can go, which is a different managerial and leadership and growth exercise than starting up companies, which I've done and I love. And at this point in my career, I think the challenge and the personal growth is, for whatever reason, feeling more satisfying at this, you know, two to 500 to a thousand person headcount level. And I'm not saying you can't be at a high tech company or a med tech company or anything and, and scale that rapidly. But at this juncture, PE feels like the right race for me. And I love venture and I still teach at Stanford. I'm going to be teaching at University of Chicago. I have, I'm, my family and I are LPs in three early stage seed venture capital funds. So I don't want you to think that as a human being, I am not wildly invested emotionally and even somewhat economically in venture. I believe in it firmly. It is the engine of the American economy and I love it. But for my own day-to-day career, I don't want, I want professional venture capitalists assessing opportunities for investment. I want as a CEO 
to be running something with a little bit more scale and foundation and trying to accelerate its growth versus starting something from zero to 100, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, the other thing just dawned on me is I'm listening and I, I love to learn as I listen to experts like yourself is the fact that how much the VC and now private equity have now replaced banks. Yeah. It, it, you know, banks used to be the place you'd go to get a loan to really go and start a business. Now it's just an afterthought. And there's so many other different alternatives. I'm telling you, this is the way it's going to be. And you're hearing it right here. I just got to thank you so much. What a pleasure. You, it's a, you're the kind of guest I just want to keep coming back to. So I'm going to keep coming back to you. Because I'd be honored I, to be back and I'm grateful to have been included. And thank you so much. I know this is an incredibly popular podcast and I'm honored to have been invited on. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you right here. And if that's it, rush out and get it. Leadership and life hacks. You've heard it right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on C-Suite Radio. Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about the things I learned. I got one big phrase for you. If you didn't get it, I'm sure you did. Lean carnivores. Lean carnivores. Why do I say that? Man, you got to be a meat eater. You got to be a meat eater. I like vegetarians, but man, I'm telling you, in this business and business world, you want to be ahead, especially when it gets tough. You want to be a meat eater. You got to be fast and strong, lean and mean. And that's what lean carnivores are. So that's what I took away was the need to be lean and mean and be that uh, lean carnivore. I, I like that term. I hadn't heard that before. So that's a, that's a new one for me. Anyway, teaching old dog new tricks, and I am an old dog, and I'm learning new tricks all the time, and I appreciate Alyssa Rap, and I appreciate all of you listening on the show, and this is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett right here on C-Suite Radio. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.